You're listening to a People of Note podcast, as heard on Classic 1027. Good evening, and welcome to People of Note on Classic 1027. I'm Richard Cock, and this program is broadcast every Sunday from 6 to 8. In it, I talk to someone who is a person of note, and we listen to music of their choice. And I'm very happy to say that my guest tonight is Harold Parkendorf. Good evening. Good evening, Richard. And welcome to the program. And I think perhaps to start off with, um, maybe you could spend just a minute or so telling us who you are and what you've, what you've been doing in life, briefly. Very briefly. I, I was, a, I was a, a newsman, actually, all my life. I edited three different newspapers, one English, two Afrikaans. I was a columnist on two papers, the Sunday Times and Report. I worked on television, television presenter. I worked on radio. I was a 15-year Sunday evening programmer talking politics. And then uh, in between I got fired for my political views. In Wake, it's so long ago, 1986. And then, then I was self-employed for 20 years as a public speaker and a political analyst. And then a company called Maropa Communications phoned me when I, can you believe it, when I was 66, so wouldn't I like to come and work for them? I obviously said yes. And are you still working now? Well, thereby hangs a tale. I, uh, at, at the end of, in the beginning of last year, they suddenly realized, good heavens, this man is 80, you'd better go on pension. And then I always like to add that Cyril Ramaphosa heard of this and then shut down the country out of sympathy because it was too much for him. (laughs) Gosh, so you've been working right up to 80. Yes, I I still do uh, a bit of radio work and I still do some translating and some writing. Absolutely, yes. Not enough, I think, but some. But enough to keep you busy. Oh, yes. Yeah. And when you're not doing radio work or politics or whatever it is, what what else do you do? What are your interests outside of newspaper and politics? I don't, my wife, mostly, I'm, <laughs> I must say. <laughs> uh, and um, no, I'm, I, I, I'm still interested, very interested in politics and the news. As, uh, my, my, the pattern of my life would be that I get up at five, take the dog for a walk. When I come back, I I drink coffee and then I watch the not not on television. I all the news sources that I have and it takes me an hour and a half to two hours to keep up to date with what's happening. And then I give my wife coffee and then the day start, day starts. Well, and that's been one of the the interesting changes that you've seen, I'm sure, in your life. When you say you don't read the paper anymore, you read it online. Yeah, you've seen in your lifetime, you've seen a complete change in how we get our information and our news, both in the technical sense and also, and I have to say that first, the way news is handled in the country today. I think we we too often are worried about the potholes in the streets and the corruption and so we and, and we and we must be obviously but we must also remind ourselves of what's good about the country you know when i was an editor of of of, of a paper we had a lawyer on standby for 24 hours a day and i remember one conversation we had with him he said no you can't publish that and we said we know that's why we phone you you must find a way to find how we can publish it and there were a hundred rules and laws which restricted what we could write and what you could read in, in before 94. And we shouldn't forget that we must have the freest media in the world. You would not be able to be as critical of the president in France as you are in South Africa. We have, and we should be very, very thankful. That's the one real change. And the other one is the one you referred to initially, and that is a, you know, you used to buy a paper and papers will have a circulation of 50,000 to 100,000. Now they're down to, what, 10, 15, 20,000. And it's because you can get the news much faster and much more chewable, if I might put it that way, um, on your computer and even on your cell phone. You don't even have to have a computer. Um, what it means is that there are far more people computing to get to the news first, and the result is that there are many more mistakes than before. And the so-called social media, um, very often just a bunch of idiots 
quite frankly, like Tokyo Sukhwalo now goes around saying the Reserve Bank has trillions, billions of, of rand, which are about to give away to people. I mean, that's nonsense started by some idiot somewhere in the United States. But a lot of that gets through and then it's accepted as truth because it is out there. So one has to read differently. So this is the big fake news story. A yeah, big fake, yeah. absolutely, yeah. <laughs> well, and in the midst of all of this, you obviously enjoy listening to music as well. So your first choice uh, tonight is uh, Dollar Brand or Abdullah Ibrahim. I guess when That's you right. started out, he was Dollar Brand. That's right. It comes from a 63 vinyl, yeah. And it's called Eclipse at Dawn. That was Dollar Brand, as he then was, now Abdullah Ibrahim. Also, well in his 80s now, but still playing. That's right. I yeah. saw the other day. It was quite amazing. Yeah. yeah. And that recording also featured uh, Chris McGregor, who is a sort of iconic figure. Yeah, I think too many people have forgotten about Definitely. him. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, they remember Mukherjee, Kipi Mukherjee, yeah. who was also on there. But Chris McGregor, two wonderful pieces on, the, on that particular vinyl, as I say, 63 one. Yeah, he, uh, and, and I like them both. Um, and I play them occasionally. Yeah. And I notice your uh, list of music is pretty eclectic. So you obviously have wide tastes, or you and your wife, maybe you listen together. Yeah, no, we do listen together. In fact, one of the better part of the days when she is up mid-morning and she comes and sits on the stoop and we have a cup of coffee and she plays whatever she feels like playing at that moment. And then later in the afternoon again, yeah. And, and off air, you said you've been together for how many years now? We first went out on the, can you believe it, on the 17th of May, 1957. And then we became firm boyfriend and girlfriend shortly afterwards, and we never looked back, and we've been married for 58 years now. Yeah. That's amazing. Mm. That's an amazing story. <laughs> 58 years is pretty good going. Well, uh, that's another part of your life, of course. How did you first get into being on newspapers? How did that happen? Uh, my wife, Aleta, actually joined the paper immediately after matrix. She just phoned and said, and, do you have a job? And they asked her to come in and they interviewed her. So you were the boss? No, well, <laughs> later I was a boss, but then she went to the newspaper first. And then one day, so she worked on the arts pages and so on. And they, she, then had to do a, a go, uh, go to a political meeting and she said, please come with me. I go, went with her, obviously said yes, if she asked me. And then when she came back, she said, she doesn't know how to write this. I said, that's no problem. I dictated it to her. And the next morning, the news editor called her in and said, you know, we want to switch you to the political page because this is brilliant stuff. And you had to confess. And then they, and then they let me know, if we ever out of a job, phone us. And I was working at Newscheck with Robert Hodgins and uh, Otto Krauser and Marty Meiring uh, at the time, which was a magazine. And then I got... Uh, uh, retrenched, I mustn't say fired, they just ran out of money. And I found the fatherland and I said, <clears throat> they said, yeah, we remember you, You can. when do you want to start? And I said, 1st of September. And then afterwards I became the editor of the fatherland and my wife then was my employee. Yeah. So it was as, as simple <clears throat> as that. It was you, as simple yeah. as that. Yeah. You were a ghostwriter. I was a ghostwriter. <laughs> <laughs> That's an amazing story. And you were a sort of will-o'-the-wisp character, which is your, your next title, Miles Davis. Here it comes. That was Miles Davis with will-o'-the-wisp. Obviously, another type of jazz that you enjoy, too. Yes, it's, a, it's a almost more intellectual jazz, I would say, um, than the, the older versions that one's, one's accustomed to. Yeah. Did you ever play an instrument yourself? Where did you grow up? I grew up on a mission station called Bochabelo, which is now the name of a, of a place near Mango and Bloemfontein. Bochabelo was right outside Middleburg in, in Pumalanga, Berlin Mission Society. Um, the man who's in the news now, Minela, from Apsa Bank, who's resigning at the end of which must be a few days from now, or no, has been a few days ago. He, uh, his father comes from there. And lots of you know, very important people were born there. Anyway, I'm not one of those. And he, and then we moved to Johannesburg. D just stop one moment. So, if you were born on a on a mission station, was yeah. your was your father a minister? Or? Well, Robert Hodgins, with whom I shared a flat, yeah. used to say, "You come from a long line of missionaries," which is 
actually true. My my first one arrived in 1840, and they all then married locally. But they went. They were all Germans. Was from, this the Rhenish mission? No, 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 no. It was no. a Berlin mission Berlin, society. Yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah, it's, and that's where I went. My wife, which is also an interesting story. First day I went to school, I remember it was the 5th of August, 1952. I went to Glasgow, Kensington, and there was this long-legged girl who came around the corner and said to me, say something in German. And I said to her in German, du bist ein Affe, which means you're a monkey. So years later, I said to her, that was the last time I said something rude to you. <laughs> anyway. And then, then you came to... Then I, to school. Yeah. yeah, that was in Johannesburg. And then I went to Worsco Kensington, where she was also. She was also, she was in my class from standard, what, standard seven to standard, uh, to grade 12. She was always the cleverest girl in the class all, the, all those years. Yeah. And is she still the cleverest girl? Yeah, she keeps on telling me that she tends to be right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's amazing. And we were talking about mission stations. That in itself is an interesting story. And your next choice is called God and Man. This is Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee. That was God and Man, Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee, the choice of Harold Parkendorf, who's my guest in People of Note. Yours is a very well-known name. Um, it's something that's popped up all during my time here in Johannesburg. I arrived here in 1980, and I was soon aware of the name of Harold Parkendorf, although uh, I didn't know exactly who you were, but your your face is very familiar to many people. And you said you'd edited three different newspapers. Yeah, I, I started on, um, I started uh, SABC News, but I wasn't there for long. Much to my father's shock, I resigned after four months. He said, you would have had a good pension. You should have stayed. I went to work for a magazine called News Check, which was an attempted in South African Time magazine, in which Robert Rogers also worked. And from there, as I said earlier, I went to the fatherland, and I stayed there, and I uh, wrote about politics, and I I, I spent a year in, in, in the United States. And when I came back, I was phoned by the then boss who said, can you run a paper? I said, of course I can run a paper. I was 29. I didn't know it. I could, but I wasn't going to tell him I didn't know. And he said, well, I want you to fly what was then Salis to Salisbury and start a financial paper in uh, in what was in Rhodesia. So I said, sure, I'll do it. And then I did. And I ran the paper. For from three. scratch? You started it yeah, from we scratch? From, yeah, find the printer, find the business manager, find the journalists, find the officers, everything. Um uh, and uh, after three years, he phoned me again and said, I want you to start an Afrikaans morning paper in Pretoria. I said, but you must remember, I'm not a member of the National Party with the Bruderbund, and I don't intend joining. And I remember him telling me, I didn't ask you what you belong to. I want to know if you can run a paper. <laughs> but it did make a difference, actually, because, I mean, you know, in those days, it was very difficult. And then after that, day, uh, I was there for oh, 72, seven years, he just phoned me one morning and said, I want you to run the afternoon paper, which is the biggest paper. And I said, sure. And, and I, that was the 1st of November, 1979. You've got a good memory for dates. <laughs> yeah, Robert Hudson says I have, yeah, I have a head full of useless information. <laughs> now, you've mentioned him several times yeah. already. What is your relationship with him? It's the artist you're talking about. That's right. But well, he obviously didn't start as an artist, <clears throat> or did he? Was he always an artist? No, he was an artist then, and he, yeah, and he, and he, and he, and he taught in the Pretoria, what would now be called the Tech. I met him through Otto Krauser, who was also a former, uh, who's from the famous Bloemfontein Krauser family, um, yeah, and and they approached me to work with them on after for, I don't know whether they must have found me through my wife, I guess. And from from the paper, and so I, that's where I worked together. Hodgson's was on was on the magazine, and then later we shared a flat for two years in Newbra. Uh, and it was from his flat that I got married, and I borrowed his car to go on my honeymoon. <laughs> you didn't borrow his suit to get married. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> <laughs> so um, life for you has been a bit of a gamble because you've accepted, for example, that first job in in Salisbury, and then Rhodesia. Yeah. You, you just sort of took a chance on it. 
Being, well, well, you obviously were confident that you could do the job. Yes. But uh, <clears throat> maybe they took a chance on you. And your next choice of music is The Gambler, Kenny Rogers. It's very appropriate. Here it comes. That was uh, Kenny Rogers with The Gambler, the choice of Harold Parkendorf, who's my guest in People of Note. Has your career always been in, well, apart from uh, Zimbabwe, then Rhodesia, has it always been in Joburg? I spent seven years. Yeah. yeah, seven years in Pretoria, and I, uh, I think I must be. I must admit, seeing everybody submitting to be corrupted, I was corrupted by the Northern Transvaal Rugby Football Union to become a Blue Bull supporter. They gave me, they gave me a season ticket and a parking place, so I, I had to support them. Yeah, <laughs> and you're a keen rugby fan. Oh yes, I, I played rugby for ten years of, of, with middling ability, but I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. do you still follow rugby? Absolutely, yeah. yes. Yeah. Less so than before. You know, the, the lockdown has changed one's habits, uh, has a direct influence. So you see, there's less to see, and, and, and so you watch less, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So well, how have you coped with lockdown? Well, I had two lockdowns because I was put on pension a week before the lockdown. So suddenly there I was at home, but then I had the... the thought which gave me some rest and that is most of the countries in the same position so it's not unusual so I know I, I think I, I coped quite well fortunately my wife was there uh, you know we grew even closer together if that's possible it is possible <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah and you were talking about rugby and your next choice is Manikis Ru with Lorica Rauch whom you've also has been in your life yes I, yeah. I know Lorica Rauch uh, I knew her better earlier, earlier on when we were both younger. We were at Coast house uh, visiting together when she, they phoned Coast and she went to the phone and answered and they told her. And, and that's why I, I, I liked uh, the next song, actually. And this one is, um, uh, they told her that the song is, is the theme song of a of of a, of a TV very popular TV series which was broadcast immediately after. But this song also has a tale to it. In those days, you could um, you would just take people from the street to come and work for you. And somebody came and I allowed him to work in the garden. And I played the song. And he came to me and he said, "That man must have had a really tough life." And I was so struck by his that he felt for the song that I appointed him as gardener and he later worked for me at the Fatherland as the copy boy and I taught him to drive a car and he became my dri official driver and his, and his daughter lived in our house and is our semi-daughter. So anyway, it's an amazing Fantastic. That's yeah. an amazing story. And here it comes, Manikis Ru, and this is sung by Lorica Rauch. That was the famous Manikis Ru. Uh, featuring Lorica Rauch, the choice of Harold Parkendorf, my guest in People of Note. And then you briefly mentioned Kurs Duplessis. Kurs was a, was a colleague, and then when I, uh, at the Fatherland, when I first worked there, which was an afternoon Afrikaans paper, and then when I was, after some interruptions, was they started the morning paper in Pretoria, I insisted that he come along and be on, on the sub-editor's desk, and then we became even closer friends than we were before. In fact, you know, it's an inter interesting side story. Lots of journalists at our house one evening, and then late, and everybody had too much to drink. Chris says, I'd like to sing your song, and my, my wife said, not another drunken the, the reporter sings, thinks he can sing, but he could sing. Yeah, yeah. and here he is, singing Kinnis van Event. Now that's Lorica. Oh, is that Lorica? But it's his song. It's his song, yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. That was uh, Lorica Rauch singing Kinnis van Event, the famous song by Kurs Duplessis. And that's chosen by Harold Parkendorf, who seems to have known everyone in South Africa, <laughs> all the singers and performers. And I'm sure you knew David Kramer as well. When you say no as a journalist, what I hate, uh, some, uh, I hate about some journalists today, they would, they would say, yes, I knew him. But they may have met him once. Yeah. So, yeah, in that sense, I know him. Well, it's like everyone says, oh, yes, I know Harold Parkendorf. He was on TV or whatever, That's right. on radio. Yeah, 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 they all think they know you. Does this happen? Because you're, you're quite distinctive looking. So uh, I'm sure people come up to you and say, hello, and they all think they know you. That's right. And quite often they, 
they early on when there was more on television more radio that happened more often but then often people couldn't remember where they just think yeah, I know you but they can't remember from where or what so you know yeah. you just smile and <laughs> answer the questions yeah. now you mentioned earlier that uh, we live in a in a world here in South Africa that actually has a very free press what has been your feeling about how that has changed worldwide in the last, say, 20 years? Well, unfortunately, one has to say that there has been a rightward shift in politics and with that a greater tendency to restrict the freedom of the media. Worldwide. Worldwide. I mean, you, you can call it ethnic politics. I see in America now they call it white nationalism, which is maybe going a bit far, but it also tells you something about what Trumpism was about. And then, and there is more of a feeling of it, not not from the Republicans. I mean, I think they go a little overboard by allowing any, anybody to buy a gun and then say that that's, a, that's taking away your freedom if you can't buy a gun, which, you know, there should be limits to everything in life. So worldwide, you would see that actually um, there is a movement uh, towards uh, restricting media rather than uh, allowing media to be as free as they are, as we are here in South Africa. So we're actually bucking the trend a bit. In a certain sense, yes. I mean, the media is still free in Europe, of course, and in, and in, uh, and in many parts of the world, but not anything like here. I mean, we... And the other thing we should be careful of together with us, I mean, be thankful for, and let, let's say it now, is that we live in a constitutional democracy. In the last 10 days, the, the, the president of Chad was killed. And what happened? His son takes over. I mean, can you imagine Duduzana Zuma immediately taking over when we get rid of Father Jacob? No, we run a constitutional democracy. You go to court. Remember P.W. Buta went to court when he was summoned? Nelson Mandela went to court when he was summoned, and if Jacob doesn't, I hope they send him to jail simply because that's how the Constitution works. Yeah, and we should be grateful for that. We should be, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, we, are, we often talk about our, our Constitution being a sort of example for the rest of the world, and in many respects it still is. No, it is, absolutely. And remains yeah. so, yeah. Well, let's come back to your next choice, which is uh, Skipskop of... David Kramer. It's it's a song about uh, evictions, and and this, these uh, uh, these are people, obviously coloured, speaking Afrikaans, singing about them being actually evicted from a place called Skipskop, which is uh, on the on the on the on the Cape Coast, uh, and it is below a place where there was a. a, a uh, shooting range, uh, so that's partly why they were removed. So it, it's a it's a moving song. I mean, one one can actually get tears in your eyes if you listen to it. So here it comes, Skip Scop <clears throat> by David Kramer. That was David Kramer singing Skip Scop, and it's chosen by Harold Parkendorf. Harold, I just want to go back a moment to your origins because you said they were your family were from the Berlin. Missionary Society. Yes. And it's amazing. I've just been reading uh, a book all about the Eastern Cape and the role that missionaries played there, partly as agents of the then government. They were sort of placed in parts of Siskai and Transkai, uh, really to spy on what was going on. But they were partly missionaries, and some of them were very sympathetic to the people they were working among, but others were definitely not. So missionaries have played a really interesting role in the history of South Africa, in education, in all sorts of ways. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and in developing languages. I I like to say, um, and, and I'm probably wrong, but, it, but, it, but it's an interesting thought. There are three distinct Sutu languages in South Africa. If you want to say broadly Southern, Western, and Northern Sutu, uh, or Saperi, Tswana, and Southern Sutu, and there are slight differences because the people who made them written written languages and translated the Bible, southern were the French Catholic missionaries, then there were the Methodists in the in the, in the old Western Transvaal and now in Northwest, 
in, up in, in northern Sutu were, in fact, uh, Berlin Mission Society missionaries, Germans. And I think that had an impact there, just as an example of what what uh, influence missionaries had. My forefathers also first served in the... Uh, in the uh, in the uh, in the Eastern Cape. In fact, my one uncle was a missionary uh, in near Stadheim in the Eastern Cape, and my the family, my my grandfather uh, worked uh, near East London, King Williamstown. From there, he moved to Natal, where my father grew up. Um, different dates. He first went to school when he was thirteen because the school was too far. The inspector came by once a year and tested him and said, okay, you're now on the next standard. <laughs> oh, and there was quite a strong German community uh, down in the Eastern Cape. Oh, yes. Yeah. I think after the Crimean War, they brought some They German... brought a German restaurant the, yeah. from Hesse, I think it was called. Yeah. In 90, uh, well, the Crimean War was 61, 63, must have been shortly thereafter, yeah. 63, 64. That's why you find uh, and, and soldiers were given, German soldiers were given property. Uh. Yeah. So there you find Berlin and Stadtheim and all kinds of places. That's right. Yes. Yeah, there, there are lots of places in that part <coughs> of the world. Um, and are you um, very aware of your ancestry? Uh, is it something that you're interested in, the Parkendorf side of your family? I am not that much, though. Um, I am. I was also in my mother's. My mother was directly German. My father grew up here and went to university here and then studied theology in Germany, where he met my mother. So I do. I, I, my, my father had seven sisters and three and two brothers. One was also a missionary. One was a diplomat, and then he was there. He was really played an important role in the in the Lutheran family as such, and in the uh, SA Council of Churches. Um, yeah, and, and, and his brother-in-law was also a missionary. So we we do actually come yeah. from a long line of missionaries. Yeah. And I have uh, two brothers and three sisters, and they're all. Active, uh, my brother Kunta has just been awarded the Academy Prize for a translation from a German, from a German book. My other brother was the head of uh, uh, an American publishing house in Germany. My sister was a journalist and a reporter. My other sister is a scientist, and the youngest sister was also, in the end, was a subner on a magazine. Yeah. So we're all here. Yeah. And I did interrupt you earlier when I asked you. Um, whether you'd had music in your upbringing. Did you play the piano or the violin? Or yeah. the... <laughs> it's a sad story, actually. My seven-year-old grandson, and we share a house with my youngest daughter. He, he's now taking piano lessons, and I keep on telling him, you know, 10 minutes is not enough. He must practice more than that. And he says, no, no, this is easy. Unfortunately, I didn't. I did have piano lessons, and I much regret that I, that I gave it up for rugby because it was on the same day that I had played rugby, and my mother wasn't there. She was on the mission station, so I would you have know, a choice to play rugby and go to piano lessons. And then, oddly enough, when I was 15, in the in the uh, in the uh, Lutheran German Lutheran congregation in Hilborough, I played in the little. I played the trumpet in the little in the brass uh, band. In the brass band, yeah. yeah. But I can't do it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Um, well, we're talking about missionaries, and uh, there was a, a Belgian priest in the uh, Congo who got all his congregants to sing together, and they created the Misaluba. Um, uh, which is a really touching piece of work. I don't think anybody can listen to it and not, and not be spellbound. Yeah. Father Guido Hazen was That's his right. name. Yes. Yeah. And, and they put out, um, I think they called themselves the troubadours of... Le Roi Badouin. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and they put out this CD. And here's the Kyrie from the Missaluba. That was the Kyrie from the Missaluba. That was a piece put together by Father Guido Hazen in the Congo, what was in the Belgian Congo. Sort of historical <clears throat> recording that of him. And it's the choice of Harold Parkendorf. Harold, one of the things you mentioned in passing was that you'd been a Niemann fellow. What does that mean? Uh, it, 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 
the name comes from uh, the Neiman family who donated millions of dollars to Harvard University and initially only um, <clears throat> American journalists could apply and you get a fellowship for a year. And initially you could study whatever you wanted to. Basically you could still can today. My my year, which was what the Americans would call a, a class of 69, uh, I was young for a Neiman but old for a student. I was 28 when I became a Neiman. And, and you, you go there for a year. I took my wife and my first daughter with me and my second daughter was actually born there. And you could study what you wanted to. Um, Unfortunately, I must say, in my year, that was the first year they actually demanded some academic work also, which I found unnecessary. But I did uh, I did for Professor Carl Deutsch. Um, and, and maybe of passing interest, what I did, I followed through on a book that he'd written and, and used his approach. Uh, <clears throat> and I could prove, and he basically said, you could, if you check what kinds of jobs people have, you can, in a multi-ethnic society, you can see what group will take over when politically and economically and so so I used that as a basis looked at white South Africa only and predicted according to his that by 1947 the Afrikaners would take over well it happened a year later so but he gave me a P a B as a, as a mark which was very good and then he wrote me a little note saying you must now sit down and write down when the blacks will take over in South Africa <laughs> Did you? I didn't, but I was very interested in the, in, in, the, in the particular the record commission and the other commissions, which were set up because it was simply impossible to run the economy without advance, advancing black South Africans as first as tradesmen and, and, and businessmen and expanding the education system. And thinking back of Professor Deutsch, I thought, well, you know, the way this thing's going, it, there's something inevitable, and that became... Not because of him, I must say, but it came a, a belief that, uh, uh, and, I, and this actually, I, I, I came across, this came to me in, when I was in Rhodesia later Zimbabwe, that it was impossible for 250,000 whites to think that they can run six million blacks forever in a day. And I actually proposed a different uh, way of doing it. And if they'd listened to me, they would have had a peaceful transition after 10 years instead of a war uh, in 10 years' time. But anyway, my approach when I came here was very gently, gently and late and much louder voice was change is inevitable. Um, better work with it than work against it. And while you're ahead of the game, you might actually have a say in what the outcome will be, uh, which partly worked with the Constitution, but the ANC obviously... Uh, I think now many of them regret that we have the constitution we have, but they, they were very strong on the electoral system we have and on the constitution we have. So as a journalist in the days when you were in print uh, media, <clears throat> did you feel that you were able to guide people in the way they should go? I mean, was it that strong? Well, certainly the voice was strong enough that the paper you probably read, the star, would quote our comments two, three times a week because they were so out of line, uh, what was generally thought in, in the day. Uh, the one, I, I like to think that I did. I, I, I think what we did was express what people were quiet, quietly thinking and unafraid to say out loud, and then suddenly, you know, here it is in print. I tell you a little story. Met many years ago, ten years ago. I went down to Mossel Bay. I, I have lots of friends in Mossel Bay, and I'm sure they they're listening tonight, and we'll be visiting them soon. Uh, we, a friend of mine, Fred Orban, we used to stay in his uh, holiday home down there. He runs the place, and they came one evening and said the neighbour wants to speak. You come wants to come across for a drink. And the neighbor did come across and he said, you know, do you remember in the in the 17th of Pretoria when you ran the paper Ochenblatt? You remember somebody phoned you and said, uh, you must come and take photographs. We're running nude to protest against the university. He said, yeah, well, I was the guy who phoned you. And we ran, and we ran the photographs, actually. And, and then he said, and this is the important point, he said, you know, what you wrote in the paper gave us attackers who disagreed with it politics of the day, a feeling that we're not alone, so thank you, and that's really what I wanted to come and tell you. Yeah. Well, and also, 
if you were sort of out of step with what was then mainstream Afrikaans thinking, yeah. how did how did that go down when you were the editor of an Afrikaans newspaper? Well, I was I I had lots of lots of problems. I really did with the within the National Party uh, with some members of the cabinet. John Forster was quite. Well, he was he was very polite, I must say. But he would phone me. He once first time when I first in '72, he phoned me at home early in the morning. Just as the sun came up, and said, "You know, I'm very unhappy with what you've written. Can you come and see me at 3:30?" And I, I, I'm not very good dealing with authority. I, I just, I'm not, I'm not. So I told him, which was very cheeky. I said, uh, "Prime Minister." I'm not in the office. If my diary allows it, I'll come and see you at 3.30. But I knew I would go anyway. But I wasn't going to let him think he can tell me what I should do. And then he phoned me, you know, fairly regularly and and walked all over me. P.W. Boerta and I, uh, he just didn't like me. He, he once, just before he became prime minister, we wrote a story, we wanted to write a story about his wife because we thought a week ahead that he would win against Connie Muller, and who was our man, actually, but we calculated it, Peter. And he phoned me on a Sunday afternoon in the office, and he was all over me in such a rude manner. So I said to him, you know, it's plain, ordinary journalism that we speak to your wife, <clears throat> and you must never speak to me in that tone of voice and put the phone down. Never spoke to me again, never, never, except once in, in Parliament when we had a very nasty article about the far-right group of HNP. He stopped me and said, that was a very good story. But other than that, he never said anything to me. He said, write letters to the board and complain about me. But yeah. anyway, that's all gone. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> well, we talk about another revolutionary of a different kind now. This is Beethoven, who uh, in musical terms was an incredible uh, uh, disruptor of musical activities. And this is part of his first piano concerto with Marta Agerich. Let's listen to it, and then you can tell us about your enjoyment of Marta Agerich. Here it comes. That was the Allegro from the Piano Concerto Number no. 1 by Beethoven, featuring the pianist Marta Agerich, who's a wonderful pianist. You know, I, I came across Marta Agerich, my, my wife, and the then editorial secretary at the Fatherland. Uh, she won't, I'm sure she doesn't want me to mention the name, but Rina is her first name anyway. Became very good friends, so we'd still visit her. And, and they always play mostly opera, and I sit on the stoop and drink a glass of wine and read a political book while they play very loud opera music, if I may say. And then she, um, she called me and said, come and look at this pianist. And they had an interview with Marta Argueris, and she was playing. And so I just thought she was... A, very attractive, which, of course, has nothing to do with the way she plays piano. And um, she is. And and, uh, and I just like the way she plays and the expression she has and the way she obviously enjoys what she's doing. Yeah. Well, it's interesting um, when you think of how many, let's say, violinists there are now who um, live on their good looks, I think. I mean, they also play the violin incredibly yeah, yeah. well. But they are very aware of how they look. And pianists, there's a fantastic um, f uh, pianist from the East called Yu Jia Wang, who's quite something too. That's right. And the other one, we're talking about pianists, I, I, I mean violence. I really not like the violence so much, but my, my mother did. Uh, and if I might say so quickly, one of, one of the parts of my musical background was when I was in grade 11. I used to go to the old Joburg Symphony Orchestra Thursday evenings, I think, in the in the Joburg City Hall. City Hall. Yeah, my mother and I would go by tram and come back in the evening by tram. Yeah, so that was, and she loved the violin, but I didn't. But I call my wife sometimes. I call her um, Anna Sophie, and I listened to Anna Sophie Mutter uh, last night, and I was quite taken. Yeah, she's very attractive. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, and she's the violin. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, obviously, you like Beethoven because you've also chosen part of the uh, second piano concerto, and this is played by Jan Lisiecki. That was part of the piano concerto number two by Beethoven, featuring the pianist Jan Lisiecki, and it's chosen by Harold Parkendorf, who's my guest in People of Note. That's the program you're listening to on Classic 1027. It's broadcast every Sunday from 6 to 8. 
And just a reminder that during the week, I'm with you every evening on the full works from 7 to 10, except on a Friday or a public holiday when it's from 6 to 9. Now, here we come to uh, part of your uh, rebellious nature, maybe. This is a song by Pete Seeger, We Shall Overcome. Uh, Why have you put that in? There's also a little story attached to it, partly because... Excuse me, when I was at Harvard, we actually attended the live Pete Seeger uh, concert. He was really big at the time. This was uh, 68, 69 people might not remember, but this was the time of the student revolution sweeping through France in particular, but Europe in general and then in in the United States also. And it hit Harvard also. They shut the university down for a while. I don't like being told by people what to do, so I went to lessons, never mind what. And I remember the professor who was there said, there were only three of us out of a class of 30, and he said, there was an African-American, a Southern American, and myself, and he said, you guys are afraid of what will happen to you if you attend the class, you may go. I will teach because I'm paid. And I said, no, I'm staying. It doesn't mean I disagree with the students that are protesting, but they can't tell me what classes I should attend or whatnot. But anyway, that's where we picked up Pete Seeger. And then when this song, <coughs> We Shall Overcome, which many people won't know if they're younger, younger than I am, and that must be most people, uh, wouldn't know that it was a, it was a sign of uh, liberation and freedom, the song itself. And my wife was then, Aleta, who was working on the Fatherland at the... Um, on the on the arts page, she got a copy of this, uh, not a CD, a vinyl, but with a song on it. And shortly thereafter, the song was banned by the government, so it couldn't be. You couldn't hear it, but you could in our flat. We played it, and lots of our friends and fellow journalists came to listen. So that's Pete Seeger taking us back to way back. Were you living in Hilborough at that time? We're living in Hilborough at the time, yes. A sort of seething cauldron of revolution in Hilborough. (laughs) That's right, yeah. Well, you know, the the Afrikaans group, uh, Fulfrey, many of them also performed in in Hilborough in those days. You know, the famous famous one was um, Renaud's Nima singing under a different name. Said it off, said it off, referring to P.W. Boote on television. I mean, so it was... Different days, yeah. (laughs) Here it comes. This is Pete Seeger with We Shall Overcome. That was the famous uh, protest song, We Shall Overcome, sung by Pete Seeger. And uh, Harold Parkendorf, who chose us, we were talking just before we started with this program about how in the old days when things were banned at the SABC, certainly when I worked there, you used to find long playing records with certain tracks uh, with a deep groove across them so there was no way you could play them <laughs> it's know, amazing honestly, yeah. and those records are probably still there actually I'm sure quite amazing so we've come a long way since those days uh, yeah it wouldn't happen today no no it's inth- unthinkable that it no. would happen in the new South Africa so um, what are some of the the highlights I mean I can imagine some of <clears> the highlights that you've had in your career as a journalist, some of the political highlights, some of the noteworthy events that happened. I mean, you've, you've <coughs> been involved in, in political reporting and newspapers in a very interesting time in our history. Well, I, I think we did a couple of things which, uh, which, which were notable, particularly in the, in the beginning in, in, in Ochenblatt in 73 and there, 72 onwards, it was a milder form of criticism. It was a not not uh, asking questions about the big homeland system, etc. But it was asking about the humanity of the people in the street. We, for example, ran a little campaign saying, you know, the post office closes at between one and two, and then blacks aren't allowed to sit on the lawn around Paul Kruger. That's completely ridiculous, you know. And that 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 doesn't didn't make you very favourable. Um, uh, popular, but afterwards, what we did, for example, which was unusual, unthinkable in those days, we translated the uh, ANC base document, the Freedom Charter, into Afrikaans and ran it and without comment, and then got ten people from different political views to write us comments on it, and it was quite amazing. We also um, 
started contact, had contacting the ANC quite early on in the early 80s. First by telephone, I first started, met my first ANC person in, in, in 82 in Hamburg. And I addressed the conference with an, a, the New York representative of the ANC, also spoke at, in, in 85. And then, yeah, I was early 85 or was it 84? And then we, we did something on one day which was quite revolutionary. We uh, I had gone to see the ANC with that famous meeting with um, the Anglo-American and Tony Bloom and uh, Rally and, and Tarsus Mayberg and so on. And that was worldwide all over. And uh, and I went without telling my bosses. Uh, I know some people who had stopped by their bosses and we were afraid of the security police stopping us. So we we flew from what... From our tambo to Lanceria, took a different plane and then flew onto Lusaka Airport. <laughs> anyway, at the same time, I'd sent a report to Dries van Heerenap, who's still a, a friend and I still work, see him frequently, sent him up to talk to the ANC and he had extensive interviews. And at the, simultaneously, we'd sent somebody down to talk to the Soviet ambassador in Lesotho, because after all, we, PW was telling us these were the really bad guys. So we thought, let the really bad guys have a chance to have their say. So I think it was on page four, and there was a full page, uh, my impressions of meeting the ANC, that's Oliver Tambo, Tawon Becky, and so on, and, uh, in, uh, and, and, and Dries van Heeren's report on the ANC's view on language, property, the economy, etc., which was, I mean, they the free, free, Free publicity for them. And another page further on, there was a full page of an interview with a Russian ambassador uh, saying what, he, what his views are. And it was quite interesting, actually. He said, you know, you, you've got the illusion there. We think this is an easy country. We just get the agencies around the country. We don't think that. We think there are lots of political players. The National Party, the old Conservative Party, the La- Colored Labour Party. The, the homeland leaders who have background, there's the ANC, there's the PI. It's not, it's not as simple as you think that we think it is. And we, and we published all of that. So on that day, I think that must have been quite a revolutionary day, actually. Yeah. So it's, it's great to feel that you were around at those times and that you could uh, shift people's image of what the actual situation was. One must never overestimate one or what one does in life. Yeah. Uh, but the fact that we, we did it and, and we did it against what went against the grain of the company yeah. I worked for, certainly against the grain of the ruling party who eventually got me fired anyway. But <laughs> some a year later it took them a long time. If you think the ANC takes a long time, the National Party also yeah. took a long time. <laughs> no, but but that then opened up other possibilities for you. As as a freelance operator, well, then also by Angsitel. Just before we, uh, I fired, I had lunch at the at the Standard Bank at the ABS with Otto Krause, earlier mentioned Otto Krause, and Willem de Klerk, who was the editor of the Transvaal. And I disagreed with him about the politics and the direction and the inevitability and the need for change. And then afterward, when I was fired, uh, in which was in on the nineteenth of May, nineteen eighty six. Shortly thereafter, I had a phone call from a woman I didn't know who said, wouldn't I like to come and talk to her? She wants to publish a uh, monthly political newsletter. And I went to see her and she said, remember that lunch you had with a guy at Standard Bank? He called me and said, you know, this guy's different. Maybe you should get him because he's obviously spoken to the ANC. And she then helped me and we published a monthly newsletter. You know, I only had four clients in the beginning, but together they paid me more than I was earning as near as near it. And then I got a, this is a funny tale. I got a, I got a fifth client. It was the security branch, who formally said we want to subscribe to your paper. I went to see Raymond Lowe formally with the round table. I said, yeah, Ray, what do I do now? I said, well, they're reading it anyway, so I let them pay for it. And, and 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 they did, and about the third edition, they said, would I come and discuss with them the contents of the... Uh, so I went to Pretoria to a flat up again. I think it was the ninth floor, and what there was a beautiful girl opening the door. And I thought, what the hell is this? And she said, no, she wants to talk politics to me. And through halfway through, she said, you know, the ANC has a conference. I remember it was at Wits. 
And wouldn't you go and just check the following things out for us? I said, no, absolutely not. And you and, and you cancel now anyway. You can't read this publication anymore. I cancel the subscription. <laughs> anyway. Amazing. Well, now here comes uh, some Beethoven, Zärtlicher Liebe, or Ich Liebe Dich. Uh, this is especially for your wife, is it? Well, it actually is my. It is for my wife, but it's also from her for me. She says, um, "I have to say to you uh, that it, it it's it's sung in a language she loves." She was a pen pal of my German grandfather. Can you believe it? When she was nineteen, he was in Germany. She was in Joburg, and she wrote German German letters. Uh, it's a, a, a favorite composer, and she absolutely adores the singer. And the song is for me. Yeah. So it's Elina Garantia singing, and the piece is Zärtliche Liebe by Beethoven. That was the singer Elina Garantia performing Zärtliche Liebe, Ich liebe dich, by Beethoven, the choice of Harold Parkendorf, who's my guest in People of Note. And so we're just about at the end of this interview now, and I just want to say thank you for being on People of Note on Classic 1027. It's an absolute pleasure to meet you. I hope that... Classic 1027 is one of the stations you might listen to occasionally. I do, I do, but I, I have to tell you, and even this is, uh, as somebody famously at SABC, on your air, um, I understand the need, the market dictates, but it's not as classic as it was in the beginning. It has lighter music also, which meant that I could include some lighter music too. Yeah, which is good. And your your final choice is actually for me, because Bach is my favorite, And you've uh, chosen a piano version of the Toccata, Adagio, and Fugue with Evgeny Kissin. Now, I don't know why you particularly chose the piano version. Well, <clears throat> it's, um, first of all, I, I difficulty finding the organ version. I mean, so I, I came across Evgeny Kissin and I thought, that's fine. It, it sounds thinner, but let me just tell a little story about that. When I shared that flat with, uh, with Robert Hodgson, much against my mother as well, I must say, um, and I got married, and we, then I went to Harvard and went on to Zimbabwe. And I remember long, and I was on the top of the second page. It was quite a dear Makar letter by from from Rob to Aleta and myself. And at the top it said, you know, it's Sunday evening. What was on do on Sunday evening? You drink a glass of red wine and you listen to Beethoven and Bach. And I thought, well, that's it. There we are. So we've had Beethoven and Bach. This is the adagio from the Toccata, Adagio and Fugue, played on the piano rather than the organ by Evgeny Kissin. That was Evgeny Kissin uh, performing the adagio from the Toccata, Adagio and Fugue. It's in an arrangement for piano. It's by the famous Johann Sebastian Bach. And that's the final choice of Harold Parkendorf, who's been my guest. Thank you again for being on the program. And thank you at home for listening. I'll be back, remember, with full works each weekday evening, so I hope to have your company then. And from all of us here at Classic 1027, we wish you a very good night.